You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them blue. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny, but cold Davis Day. But cold Davis Day. But cold. Don, it's cold. Well, actually, is it sunny where you are? Because <laughs> it's not sunny uh, where I am. <laughs> well, you're right. It's it, it clouded up while I wasn't looking. I was wondering if you were going right. to start, start our show with the usual bright, sunny uh, Sacramento Valley Day. It is 39 degrees in Dixon, or actually Davis right now, and foggy. Uh, We have not in Dixon seen the sun yet this morning. We started the morning cold and somewhat foggy, and then it proceeded to get foggier. Looking out the window at the lovely vista, I can see that the fog is rising. Whether it will rise and then disperse is the key question. We had a classic valley day here a couple days ago. The kind of thing that Lois and I remember because we've been here for a long time. The sun never came out. The high temperature for the day was 44. It started with frost, then fog came in. Fog formed a low ceiling of clouds as it rose up, and it never got bright, and it never got warm. And people were really complaining. The funny thing is, I remember in the 1980s, that was a common phenomenon. That was normal. We were famous for it, actually. Yeah, after two weeks of valley fog, you know, people would like just drive up to the top of a mountain someplace (laughs) so they could get above it and finally get some sunshine. We ordered regularly for four decades from a nursery in Auburn that grew great bedding plants and vegetables. And they would laugh and laugh because we did all the ordering in those days by phone. And they would call in the morning of the order day. And I would say, well, it's really gloomy down here. And they said, yeah, we know. We can see the fog. We're above it. <laughs> so if you look at radar imagery on a day like what we had on, I guess it was Monday, wasn't it? Uh, where that happened. If you're up there, you're lurking down on a the valley as a great bowl of fog and it settled in and it sat, mm. sat on us and people were pretty miserable. I do remember in the 1980s, we had a 14 day spell of yep. that, which was quite yep. memorable. And it was, people were getting pretty crabby about it. But for now, right now, as we record the show on December 21st, the beginning of winter, winter solstice, uh, the temperature is 39 degrees going up to a high today of 54. That is assuming that the sun is going to come out. There's going to be patchy, dense fog tonight, 38 degrees. The day of the broadcast will be patchy fog in the morning, going up to a high of 54. But we, uniquely in the country, California, have a warming, sunny trend coming for a few days. If you go look at radar imagery, there's one that I really like where they've colored it in with purple for colder than average, like 20 degrees colder than average, and of course, orange to red for warmer than average. Everything pretty much east of Nevada is a giant purple blob. The Most of the United mm-hmm. States is going to be engulfed in, oh, they're using all these different terms like a, a bomb cyclone and all these kinds of, uh, you know, apocalyptic terms that they prefer to use. A very Icebox. Very, That's a- very cold Arctic air masses moving over the Midwest, the mid-Atlantic states, all the way down to Florida. One of my customers and one of our listeners was is talking about how he's heading down to Florida to visit family. 
for Christmas, maybe not going to be so Florida-ish when he gets there because of how cold they're actually going to get there. Through that period, most of California is going to be somewhat above average temperatures, though not a whole lot. We're looking at a high on Friday of 59, lows 44, 44, Thursday night and Friday night and Saturday night. Saturday, patchy fog, partly sunny, warming up to 61 degrees. Christmas Day is going to be patchy fog before 10 a.m. They're going to warm up to 63 degrees. I sent that to my friend who lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and she gave a hollow and mirthless laugh. <laughs> Monday, <laughs> Monday has a slight chance of rain, patchy fog, otherwise mostly cloudy with a high near 62. Significant change as this ridge breaks down Monday and moves out of the area, moves to the east, and we actually have rain coming in for the next week. And from one model that I looked at, there's a weather forecaster in the Bay Area who relies on this particular one, so I see it regularly. As much as two to two and a half inches of rain over the course of next week, beginning on early Tuesday, uh, the rain looks pretty firm now. Even the National Weather Service has come around and looked at their models, and it looks like we do have a wet spell beginning on Tuesday, but a few degrees above average right through Christmas Day and Monday. Um, it looks like we're going to go into a wet spell for several days. We are at average for rainfall, above average for snowpack at this time for the date. And this would certainly augment that. So that's certainly good news from state water standpoint. This is, all, we're only two thirds of the way through December. We've yeah. still got another 10 days to go. So yeah, wait, wait till we get to chilling hours. That'll be fun. Oh, that'll <laughs> that, be fun. Yeah. In just a moment. <laughs> KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you and us to fund our operating costs. If you like the Davis Garden Show or all the other great programming here at KDRT, head on over to kdrt.org, kdrt.org. The donate button is still right there on the homepage because we just got through our fall fundraising festival. We met our goal, but if you didn't get a chance to donate, head on over there. We're always happy to take donations after the fact or anytime for that matter uh kdrt.org later there check on the click on the schedule guide look at some of the other great programming here it's holiday season all the different programmers will make their own decisions about what they're going to do for the holidays but i can tell you that cowboy tracks got christmas in the western style new episode of christmas music done western style this ranch christmas show happy holidays from nancy she's on a mission it says here to preserve and promote the cowboy Western music heritage and offer Western music, Western swing, cowboy poetry as a healing balm for today's hectic world. That runs, what is the broadcast time for cowboy tracks? Let's see here. I'm going to have to go back to this page. Hold on, folks. I'd be better prepared in the future. You can look it up on, on your own also, even if Don doesn't find it, by going to kdrt.org and look for the schedule. Yeah. You probably would be faster than me if you did that. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. I can tell you. In, in that fact, it's on we're just going to let <laughs> Wednesdays at one o'clock. There we go. Wednesdays at one o'clock. Very Cow good. Cowboy, Very good. Cowboy track. And let's go to the mailbag. No. No. You said to go to the calendar next. Calendar. So I've got the calendar uh, up. Oh, wait. First, what? I want to tell you how many chilling hours we've had. So to okay. date, chilling hours in Davis. This is the Simmons Weather Station. Davis is five hundred and thirty-six hours below forty-five degrees. How does that compare with previous years? Well, let's see here. Last year at this point, which was a high chill year last year, we had 333. 536. <laughs> Before that, 373. 333. 290. 317. 317. Typical pattern by mid to late December is about 300 chilling hours. We've had 
536 chilling hours to date that has actually met the chilling hours needs of many fruit varieties so let's hope we don't have a sudden spike of warm temperatures or who knows what will happen okay let's go to the question so, there but but you said something as we were getting on the show that really astonished me you said there was one 24-hour period in which we had 24 chilling hours Monday. wait a minute wait a minute yeah. what do you mean so so what does that mean that means that during that day the low was above freezing and the high was below 45. correct that was monday though for the chilling wow. hours current model that they use uh, for measuring the the current way fruit tree experts evaluate is chilling portions which we've talked about many times mm -hmm. but literally chilling hours which is still a really good proxy for how a particular variety is going to do is the measured temperatures hours between 32 so above freezing and below 45. In one 24-hour period on Monday, we were entirely between 32 and 45 degrees. That's 24 <laughs> chilling hours in a 24-hour period. And it certainly felt like it, too. We hope the fruit trees appreciated that because most of the rest of us weren't thrilled about it. In a typical, <laughs> typical winter chilling hour session will be 12, 16, even 18 on a really cold day. But when you get that overcast settling in and you get the, you know, the high temperature never bumps above 45, that whole day went to the benefit of all those deciduous fruit trees out there. So if you were shivering, at least think, you know, the apples and the peaches were happy about it. <laughs> well, let's talk more about chilling hours. And yeah. Ashdale sent an email to us. By the way, you can send an email too if you have a question. And you send that to? davisgardenshow at gmail.com. Okay, so Ashdale lives in Sonoma, Sonoma County. Sonoma County. Yeah. Uh, the more I learn and think about chilling hours and the sunset zones, the more confused and amazed I am at Sonoma County. <laughs> I had a question about chill hours. It's often repeated that without the opening in the coast range at San Francisco, things would be a lot hotter in summer and colder in the winter, but it's already pretty cold by California standards here in Sonoma County. Now, let's stop a moment and tell people where Sonoma County is, because if you're not from California, you may not know where it is. It's wine country. Napa and Sonoma counties are the valley in between the coast range and uh, us, which uh, where a lot of the grapes, you know, the best grapes in the world are grown, actually. It's a very fertile agricultural valley. They get more rain than we do here. They typically run around 28 to 30 inches of rain in many parts like Santa Rosa, and um, they do get a lot of chilling for... 100 years ago that people realized you could grow apple trees really well in Sonoma County. Well, I mentioned grapes. Grapes can grow in a wider range of conditions. They don't have a specifically high chilling requirement, but apples do. Apples have are known to have a specific high chilling requirement that for most varieties. Many, many years ago, they started planting apples over in Sonoma County. Highway 12 uh, takes you there. Uh, if you've been to, let's say, St. Helena, Napa, um, think of other cities over in the Cloverdale. Well, I guess that's Cloverdale. Yeah. So the key thing here is that it, the valley goes north and south. Yep. Uh, the southern end does uh, it does have a, it does have water in it. So the, that does eventually go into the Bay Area. But the valley itself is quite long, mm -hmm. and most of it is quite far north of the Delta influence. Yep. Davis, we have a straight shot right down the Sacramento River, and we get the Delta influence right away because we're right at the at the river. It's a big but mouth. There... The, the, Delta, the Delta is a very big, wide mouth and funnels yep. cooler air in. The USDA zones and sunset zones really diverge here. Um, USDA zone, it's just 9A, 9B. It's just like us, and it is. Interestingly, sunset zone 14, 
which is where Davis is, which is predominantly interior influence, but with marked or distinct coastal influence. In other words, overwhelmingly interior, but more coastal influence than other interior sunset zones, sunset zone 14. Napa Valley is also sunset zone 14. The so whole valley or just yeah, the bottom? The, the Well, the valley, the valley itself, not the hills above the valley. So unlike um, uh, the central valley, they don't have zones eight and nine nearby to that I right off the top of my head. It's mostly zone 14. It's very, very similar to Davis for listeners who happen to know the region. And if you've been over in Napa on a hot summer day, yep, it's just as hot there as it is here. And if you're up the north end of Napa Valley, you're driving over to the coast, you notice that the cooler air pushes in through the, the narrower canyons there. You definitely get the coastal influence. It's definitely there. And it's probably comparable uh, as you get into the flatter valley parts of the valleys there, Sonoma and Napa Valleys. Whereas in the Sacramento Valley, so you just go further in and further up, you get into sunset zones eight and nine, which are colder in the winter, hotter in the summer because they get less delta or coastal influence. Okay, so he says it's already pretty cold here in Sonoma County, so cold that we get a lot of chilling hours, but we are still in zone 14. I thought that high chilling hours was correlated with hotter summers and a more interior weather influence, like Davis, Sacramento, Fresno. Wait a minute, those aren't all the Okay, like the same, Davis, though. Sacramento, Fresno, and such, and we get more hours than Davis and the surrounding areas, even though we are closer to the ocean. What about Sonoma County makes it so cold in the winter and autumn versus other similar places like Davis, Sacramento, and even Auburn? Topography or um, specifically the presence of a very young mountain range is be that would be the biggest influence. The coastal mountain range is a very rapid ascent for clouds as they hit from the Pacific Ocean. Uh, they go up very, very quickly compared to, say, the Sierra, where they, they go uphill more slowly. It causes a lot of um, uh, sudden changes in the moisture content, for example, in the clouds. You're, you're, that north coast is one of the wettest parts of California because uh, storms that come in with any amount of uh, moisture in them just, just dump it on that region. Uh, typically, this year is an exception, actually. Typically, they get far more rainfall as you get closer to the coast range. I highly recommend the book Assembling California by John McPhee, who is a well-known writer. He wrote for many, he is, he's still alive, wrote for many years for the New Yorker. And then he started publishing his columns in the New Yorker in assembling them into books. And he works closely with Dr. Eldridge Moores here at UC Davis as a geologist who gave him advice on two of his books, Basin and Range and Assembling California. And once you read Assembling California, you'll begin to understand that the coast range is unique. It's a very rapid ascent for clouds. It causes rapid cooling of those clouds and it causes them to express their moisture, but it also means that as they pass over any place further north along that range, you're gonna have colder temperatures. That's the best answer I can give you. Cold air draining down from your nearby sudden mountains, as opposed to those more boring mountains further east <laughs> or they, they're older and more rounded and the clouds take longer to get up them now those of you who live in the midwest and places like that can see clouds come in over a big geological area and you can see this thing happen i can i've told this story before but why not i'm getting old so i can repeat my stories i was in visiting our family's cabin in the black hills of south dakota you know where the Black Hills are. Mm -hmm. It's a, an, a mountain range surrounded by the vast flatness of the United States. And my grandmother came running out at one point, said, kids, get in the house, and ordered us all in the house. She pointed out far in the distance, these giant high thunderclouds. It didn't look like they'd ever get to us. And she said, get in the house, it's going to hail. 
And she was absolutely right. As we watched those clouds come in, they started raining, that kind of sharp rain that's coming down very hard, mm -hmm. cold. And next thing we knew, hail was coming down. This is not little tiny, trivial Sacramento Valley kind of hail. This is the kind of hail that batters the meadow into, you know, into beaten grass. Looks like elephants have been stomping through it. So you know that when clouds hit a change in terrain, it significantly affects the temperature, the moisture, and a lot of other things. The Black Hills are an extreme example of that, but the Coast Range is another example of it. And so you have air masses coming in off the Pacific, which is relatively warm, and they hit this rain coast range where the highest mountains are 3,000, 4,000 feet, and they hit that rapidly. That's the main thing. The rapid elevation causes instability and rapid temperature drop and, of course, rapid water drop in one form or another, whether it is water or, as someone took some lovely pictures of on Monday, snow up on the coast range, which happens here every winter. We get it once or twice. So it's that sudden change causing colder temperatures would be my best guess. Also, bear in mind, the CIMA stations are in a wide range of places, and there are there is some variability about the impact of nearby urban areas. I have observed that. So Davis and Dixon, the CIMAS station, C-I-M-I-S, for those of you trying to look this up and figure out where your nearest station is, um, managed by the Department of Water Resources, I think. The CIMAS weather station for Davis is only about 20 miles from the CIMAS weather station for Dixon, but the one for Dixon is out in the open, out in farmland, nothing nearby mitigating any of the temperature or anything. Uh, it's a standard weather station. You know, they, they have a standardization for this, so they'll all give comparable results. And it runs 10 to 20 percent higher chilling hours every year than Davis. In point of fact, that's valid. If you're planting an orchard and it's in a place where you've got something causing warmer night temperatures in particular, like urban heat island effect, that could have an impact on which varieties are going to do well for you. So we know that chilling hours are a proxy for other things, and we'll get into that in a moment. But it is valid that the weather station you're looking at does reflect that I won't say microclimate, I won't say macroclimate, kind of in between locally. And locally is really important when it comes to certain fruit varieties. So even though Ashdale hasn't gotten a sufficient answer to know why everything's happening, the good news is you can just look up the nearest SIMA station, you yep. can look up the results, you can find out what the chilling hours in your area are. And you don't have to go, well, it's uh, zone 14. So right. zone 14 has X chilling hours. No, 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 no. Look at your local area. It will tell you your local chilling hours. Within zone 14, I would expect anywhere from 20 to 30% difference between mm -hmm. different stations, depending on the local topography and other factors. And so it, early farmers in California who want to grow tree crops quickly realized there are places that you and I, having studied pomology, would say you shouldn't be able to grow apple trees there, but they do. Either they find a variety that is well adapted, like the Gravenstein apple, which is a famous apple in Sonoma County, uh, became the dominant apple variety in that region. They were very well known for it. If you go over there, it's the one that they really are touting. That's the applesauce apple, but they're quite delicious right off the tree. Or you go down to San Diego, where I grew up, Ramona, up there in interior San Diego County. Now, I don't know how many chilling hours they get, but you're not talking high elevation. That's Apple Hill. I mean, that's that is where you would go in the apple season to pick apples mm -hmm. from the you pick places just east of Los Angeles in the hills above Los Angeles. Same thing. Now they do get chilling hours up there. But it was long before we even understood chilling hours that farmers mm -hmm. were planting apples up there because there's what we now know about chilling hours. 
again, it's still a really good proxy measurement. When I use that, I'm saying it's telling you roughly what you need to know about a particular variety. It doesn't describe the whole chilling portions concept, which is going to be of more significance as climate change causes spikes in temperature during the midwinter. That's a really important variable that chilling hours don't get at. That's where the chilling portions model is more useful. But what we do know is that there's always varieties that will work even if you don't have exactly the chilling hours, it's still a reasonably good guess. If you're living in Southern California and your chilling hours at your weather station are 300 to 400 chilling hours, I wouldn't plant a 600 or 800 chilling hour variety down there. Most years you won't get good fruit or things will happen. It won't, it just won't happen at all. Uh, so you need to choose varieties that are suitable to your region, even though we do have more sophisticated models at this time, but also be aware that wherever you are, there's going to be differences. I know someone in Davis was looking for a place to lease, rent, buy out in the country for her fruit trees because yeah, she has quite a collection of them. She wanted to do that kind of thing. And she realized that she'd actually have better chilling, so better opportunities for a wider range of varieties if she looked outside of Dixon or between Vacaville and Winters, where we always get 900 hours. You know, we can we can pretty well count on that most years. So where you are, we're getting down to somewhere between your climate and your microclimate, your regional climate will make a big difference. So I have a question about chilling. And I know the temperature range. If I had an area where there was a flat spot and next to it was a sloped spot, so the side of a hill, not really hall, just, just, mm -hmm. just slanted and mm -hmm. something flat, wouldn't it make wouldn't the one that was slanted have more chilling hours, probably? No, the cold air drains down. So I have a customer who lives up above winters, lives in the uh -huh. hill up above winters. He can grow subtropical plants that are uh -huh. badly, badly injured at my house. Now, we're not talking chilling hours now. We're talking frost injury. But same principle. He's up. He's got a beautiful view. The fire seasons have been pretty hairy for him. But he's up above winters. He posts pictures of the sunsets that are spectacular. He almost never actually sees a frost on his property. He gets cold enough to have frost, but it, the air doesn't settle where he is. It drains down to his poor neighbor downhill. <laughs> so the, if he, let's say if he had a banana plant, his would be fine. It is fine. His neighbors would be killed back. You know, and this is a difference within less than a mile. And so you're seeing the impact of cold air draining. Cold air drains down. That's what makes the difference between zone eight and zone nine on the sunset zone system, because zone eight is the flattest, flattest bottom part of the valley. Zone nine is slightly upslope from that. Does it make a difference in terms of the ultimate cold? Probably not, but it does make a difference for how long it stays cold on a particular night, for the extent of the injury and so on. So for, the, for those of you who still follow the sunset zones, which most of us learned zone eight wouldn't be as good a place for citrus if it's a tender variety as zone nine and zone nine wouldn't be as good a place for citrus as zone 14 just because of the risk of winter injury other than that the differences between them are they're all in usda zone nine so as far as that goes well um i think we should go and we should talk about the calendar because okay. you know we've only got another week and I don't think we'll talk about the calendar and the last show in December. So now is our time. If if you, the listeners, were to go to redwoodbarn.com, which is Don's website, and then slash calendar slash December22.jpg, you would find December's calendar. Now, last week when I tried to go to the January one, I wasn't there. But January 2023 is up now. Yep. So if you go to his uh, Red, 
redwoodburn.com, just click on the calendar link and you'll find the new calendar stuff, right, Don? Yeah, that's correct. All, right. all of 2023 are there. And the reason we want to talk about this is that uh, we live in a place where you can have flowers all year round. There are places where, you know, I mentioned I have a friend who lives in Michigan. She posted a picture. No flowers there. <laughs> so that's a snow sculpture, though. Yeah, I mean, it's was, lots of fun to make snowmen and stuff I like that. I would go crazy, but there are lots of things. You didn't you grow can... up there, Don. If you grew that's up good. there, you'd be fine. No, no, no. I don't know how you put up with it, folks. I admire anyone who can live with snow for four months of the year. I but Four here, months? What yeah. do you mean four months? I'll have to ask her. <laughs> what was your average in Ann Arbor, Michigan? Well, our, our joke in Upper Peninsula by Canada was nine months of winter and three months of poor sledding. Yeah, and insects. <laughs> um, yeah, so there are, talk about. there are lots of plants that flower freely on their own without any risk of cold injury here in the middle of the winter. It's a shorter list, obviously, than we have spring, summer, and fall, but there are things that give us lovely flowers here. And I'll start with one that has made Sacramento famous, and that's the Japanese camellia, Camellia japonica, which is uh, Sacramento years ago designated itself the camellia city. Camellias do very, very well in California. They're actually surprisingly easy to grow. There are some specific requirements that they're said to have, but uh, you'll find that they're a big shrub, tree-like if you give them long enough. I mean, if you go to Capitol Park anytime now through February or March, you'll find big hundred-year-old camellias in full bloom, glorious bloom. And that'll show you the potential these have over many decades to establish and, and become large landscape features. Camellias flower, uh, the Sasanquas flower in the fall, September, October, November, the latest in December. One of the nicest Sasanqua camellias formerly, now classed in a different species, is Yuletide, bright red flower with a yellow center, blooms in the month of December, hence the name. It has a lovely lemon scent, by the way. There they're all done typically by the end of December. And then the Japanese camellias, Camellia japonica, the more famous types, the kind my grandfather grew, the kind that is the, the centerpiece of the camellia festival that's been in Sacramento for 50, 60 years. Those bloom in the middle of the winter. So we have, we're fortunate to have a big flowering shrub that is at its peak of spectacular beauty here mid-winter. So we'll start with that one. But there's other flowers as well. Wait, let's, before we go too far, mm -hmm. Davis, you used to be very jealous because Sacramento could grow camellias and we couldn't. And that was because of the minerals in our water. And then a few years ago, they changed our water source. Now we can grow camellias too. All you have to do is plant them, make sure there's good organic material on the soil as a mulch. We don't amend the soil for camellias. Years ago, I recommended it. Now we don't. Plant them just like any other woody shrub. Mulch heavily. That evens out the moisture, helps helps mitigate some of the effects of the, the salt content of the water. Um, and fertilize them if you wish, but that doesn't appear to be as crucial with the newer water supply. Even though the pH is still high intentionally, all these so-called acid-loving plants are doing much better for Davis residents, which does demonstrate the point that it wasn't actually the pH that was the problem necessarily. Most of these things can be mitigated with a nice surface mulch of organic material of any kind, preferably not bark, preferably compost or arborist wood chips. Bark can be amended with that or put on top if that's what you want to do. People are finding it a lot easier to grow. Camellias. Some people are doing well with azaleas. We're not jumping into the things that are also salt sensitive. Nobody's done well with rhododendrons yet. There are some of these things that none of us used to sell or grow here. 
30, 40 years ago that people are doing better with. It's sort of a spectrum. So some plants on that list, like dogwood, I'm not going to sell them because they never look good. There's other factors there. But we are better able to grow the so-called acid-loving plants, both here in Dixon, um, but especially in, in woodland. Sorry, I didn't mean Dixon because Dixon's still on ground. Or here and in woodland where they've gone over to the surface water. Can I tell you about some of the pictures that are on this calendar? Yeah, so you're doing December or January? Well, first I'm going to do December. Okay, start with And that. snapdragons, are they still here or are they done now? They're just starting. This is a great time um, to grow snapdragons. Snapdragons are put in here in California. We plant them uh, for best results in the fall, as we do pansies and violas. Some of the new varieties will come into bloom right away, probably in bloom when you buy them, because those are day neutral, so they'll bloom no matter what. Older fashioned varieties you'll plant in the fall, as I've already done. I've planted mine for spring. They'll grow through the winter and they'll bloom in the spring. And mm. they'll bloom right on into April or May. And if it's even relatively mild, I don't mean you know super mild, but even relatively mild, they'll continue right on into June. Personally, I have learned to cut back rather than pull out snapdragons because very commonly, They'll make it through the summer, start blooming again in the fall, and bloom in through the next winter. And I even have plants that are three, four, five years old. Wow. So this is, it's one of these plants that we sell as an annual. We sell it as a winter annual, meaning it should bloom in the winter and spring. And then ordinarily high temperature finishes its season. But it mainly, it isn't killed by high temperature. You just look at it and go, ooh, that's not blooming anymore and it looks rough. I'm going to take it out. So it's an annual because you decide to make it an annual. Typically, snapdragons can continue for a couple of years. The last two years, uh, one young man who works for me and I have been going through and finding cut flowers and testing them out and seeding them and seeing what's the best way to grow them. Last year, or this, this year, we're still in, 2022, my most successful cut flower from that whole project we did were the old-fashioned long-stem snapdragons. I highly recommend that if you're into cut flowers, you give this a try. But you got to look them up. You aren't going to find them at your garden center. No, we're growing them, but your average garden center is not going to have these because they don't bloom in pots. You plant them now, or if you're listening in a much colder climate, when the snow goes away, you plant them in the spring, and they'll bloom several months later. But they give you blooms that are on spikes as much as two feet long. Those spikes open very slowly and gradually, and they keep sending up side shoots. I got more bloom out of the cutting versions of snapdragons, which is really all you need to look for in the seed catalogs that are beginning to arrive. Uh, then almost any of the other cut flowers we came up with, they were very, very satisfactory. Only issue with snapdragons I need to mention, they can get a fungus called rust. It's just like, looks just like the rust you get on roses. It's on the underside of the leaf. It's an orange spot. It came in on the seed, I'm sorry to say. So the seedlings that you planted had it. And if they do, pull them out and throw them away or else you'll have an ongoing frustrating problem with rust on your snapdragons. It wasn't in your yard attacking the plant. It was on the plant when you bought it. I hate to say that because it tells me, as I can tell you from experience, that wholesale growers are not necessarily checking their seedlings carefully. But hollyhocks and snapdragons in particular, the rust disease itself is seed-borne. It was on the seedling when you planted it. So as you're looking at those six packs at your local garden center, if you're looking at the more bedding types, just gently turn them over, look at the undersides of the leaves, look for orange or black spots, little fungus spores on the undersides of the leaves. Don't buy those. You might even go ahead and, and tell them, tell the people there. Oh, decide what you're going to do about that. It doesn't always work to tell the people, but it's worth a try, I suppose. Um, a well-run nursery will be monitoring those things. So, uh, But there are bigger stores, shall we say, that they don't really check that kind of thing. I guess you could bring it to their attention if you like. Yeah. But the main thing is don't buy them and monitor your young plants. Because once you get rust, 
on snapdragons in a bed because the plants tend to carry over through the summer. The disease does as well. And you tend to have an ongoing problem with it. Same thing with hollyhocks. So that's really the only downside on them, but they're great to grow. Does the rust from snapdragons migrate to other plants if you take the snapdragons out? Nope, that's the good news. Rust is generally, as far as I know, always highly host specific. So the one on your hollyhocks only goes on members of the mallow family, which may include nearby weeds that are in the mallow family, like Malva palustris, which is a common weed in our area. So that can be a reservoir for it in the case of the mallow family member that you're growing, the hollyhock. That one doesn't attack snapdragons and vice versa. So that's the good news is that the rust on your roses is not jumping from your roses to your lawn. That's a different rust. It's not jumping from the roses or the lawn to your snapdragons. That's a different rust. So the answer to rust, there's no just go ahead and say this firmly. There is no fungicide, in my opinion, that actually works on rust, on roses or anything else. I'm sure Rose Society members have found some obscure product that they can work that works for them, but I'm just going to say there isn't. <laughs> okay. More to the point, you just get rid of it physically. Just physically remove all of the rust, whether it's on the leaves of your roses, whether it's on the snapdragons. But in the case of a bedding annual, it will get worse and worse on that plant. I really do suggest just taking that out clearing everything out, getting all the snapdragons out there, every leaf that's on the ground, then it's safe to go ahead and plant again, but check those young seedlings as they go in. We started hollyhocks uh, last year to sell. Every flat we had, one or two of the plants immediately showed some rust spores, so we threw them out. We weren't going to try and pick those leaves off and make them safe. We weren't going to try and find a fungicide to sell them with. I wasn't going to sell people infected plants. So we just threw them out. And that's basically what you need to do. Because as I say, unfortunately, it came in on the seeds when you planted them. So let's go back to the calendar. That was depressing. Yeah, I know. Snapdragons are great. Don't hesitate to grow snapdragons (laughs) because of rust. Sometime in future show, Don, I would like you to explain what rust is versus what this other thing is, what this other thing is. And that's going to be a heavy show. So let's do it some other time. Let's be cheerful. It's foggy outside. Let's be cheerful. (laughs) Okay. I'd say that one of the cheerfulest things is Daphne Odora because it smells so (laughs) sweet. You chose a plant with a 50% mortality rate to talk about the cheerful flowers. Okay. <laughs> it smells good. If you got it, it's good. If you don't have it, down, that's fine. Daphne Odora <laughs> is a wonderful shrub that is beginning to bloom. Blooms in late December and January. It's a winter blooming shrub, hence the name Winter Daphne. It is one of the most fragrant plants in creation. Sm- smells like a cross between uh, perfume and lemon scent. I mean, it's really spicy and wonderful fragrance. And it's easy to grow but easy to kill is the way i've taken to describing it the daphne plants that i see succeeding are generally in yards or landscapes where no one is doing anything at all to them except watering them deeply every now and then and in most cases water drains away you know either on the slight slope or in a raised bed or something like that daphne odora is extremely vulnerable to the water molds particularly phytophthora but others as well that kill them when it's warm and you water them too often i've killed three or four of them myself and these were plants that were getting well established but in my case because i'm a gardener i was sticking things in around them in the bed nearby and in the summer those new plants needed water and i watered them and i overwatered. in other words i kept it too damp around the daphne and i killed them so i keep looking around for a place where i can put a daphne get it established and then just water as little as possible the ones in the arboretum are really good examples near the uh, 
Carolee Shields uh, White Garden there near the Oak Grove. Uh, big established plants as you walk right in there. They cause a lot of people to walk into my nursery going, what is this? Can you order it? And I say, I'd be more than happy to order it. Please understand that wholesale growers have about a 50% failure rate in production because of the water mold problem, the organisms that attack them. And home gardeners have about a 50% mortality rate. That's off the top of my head. The first number is actually direct to me from a grower. Uh, but it's a very high failure rate. And there's nothing to really do once they start to go. You know, when the plant starts to wilt, is there anything you can do? Nope, not at that point. You've now lost that Daphne. So it's frustrating. But as they tell you in the Sunset Western Garden Book and almost any other reference work on Daphne Odora, they're worth it for that fragrance. And if you find the right place and you're doing whatever it takes to get them to grow, which is usually a fairly calculated neglect, um, don't change that. That's the mm -hmm. simplest one. The best plants I've ever seen are essentially deep watered, not much else going on. Don't prune them. Certainly don't move them. Don't heavily mulch close to the stem. Uh, don't change your irrigation pattern around them and so on. So it's one of those plants that you should get to the point of establishment and then leave alone. So they're pretty carefree. Actually, if you think about it, it's just that gardeners tend to kill them. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Okay, there are three in here that aren't don't seem to be typical flowers. I mean, they're flowers and right. they're beautiful, but right. they're not the they're not the pansies and the daisies and stuff. And this is Helleborus, Euphorbia, and Zygocactus. Yeah. And are they all related? No, nope, not at all. No, zygocactus is the Christmas cactus. That's your tropical, subtropical species of cactus that people like to bring indoors to bloom for the holidays. Um, the, the hellebore is a very hardy, very cold hardy perennial. Helleborus orientalis has become the most popular of the species in the trade because new hybrids have come on the market in an amazing range of colors from literally almost black to a whole bunch that are spotted and uh, pink and there's even a yellow one now. So a lot of hybrid work has been going on on Hellebores. Why? Because it's a perennial that's easy to grow that blooms in total shade. It will bloom wow. in partial to total shade. It will, in fact, morning sun is fine, but anything more than that is a little rough on the foliage. So I have had one Helleborus orientalis 30 years now under my uh, sycamore tree out front. No special care, not particularly drought tolerant. They, the species of hellebores vary with respect to drought tolerance, but the orientalis want average garden watering. They're not fussy, but they go very well with things that are higher water. That's for sure. How tall are they? Mostly they blooming 16 to 18 inches. Uh, some are a little tighter, uh, but they're mostly figure a foot for the foliage and the flowers stand up above the foliage. And these would are flowers. They, would they work under a redwood tree? Yes. Yes. This is one, oh, goody. Yes. This is one of the few things that will <laughs> give showy flowers in the winter in the shade. And they love the, the needle drip of the redwood. So, they, you know, the, the fact that they'll be sort of steadily mulched by redwood needles will be absolutely fine with them. Uh, as I say, this one that's been in the ground on my property is, is 30. I planted in the late 1980s. So whatever that is, 30 plus years. Comes back and blooms year after year after year. It's one of the old ones. So it was just a light pink color, but the new ones are quite showy. If you have a lower water low, uh, shade landscape, there is a hellebore that will work. It has actually very interesting foliage. Helleborus. Uh, let me get the name right. Um, Helleborus. 
Okay, Corsican hellebore is the name I was looking for. Helleborus argutifolius. And it has a, a grayer leaf that's sort of bold textured and it's kind of toothed on the edge. So the foliage itself is actually rather attractive. Its flowers so far are just in that pale yellowish green color, but they're quite striking against that foliage. And some hybrids have been created with these. These are drought tolerant. They can go into low water shade landscapes. And, you know, getting color in shade landscapes can be kind of challenging at times. So that's the Corsican hellebore. Your average garden center might have a couple of them down at the end of the display because these are not as high movers for us as the Helleborus orientalis, but they're worth looking into. Helleborus corsica is the, corsicus is the old name. Helleborus argutifolius is the new name for the Corsican hellebore. I have a question, question from Scott who writes, I always collect all of my yard leaves and compost them. My neighbor has started using bionide to control the miserable sticky stuff that her tree leaves drop. As I collect leaves for composting, I am wondering if I ought to try to avoid leaves from her tree and just leave those leaves in the street. The reason for the concern is that I use my compost in my food garden food growing garden. I do not want to ingest bad stuff through eating my homegrown vegetables. Should I be concerned or is Bionide product harmless to me? So it's Bonide is the brand, B-O-N-I-D-E, Bonide. And uh, that's only one of the brands that are out there of imidacloprid, imidacloprid, which is one of the best known neonicotinoids. Uh-oh. Let that stay, hang out there. Uh-oh. Imidacloprid. <laughs> Neonicotinoids, all right, big words, but these are systemic insecticides that are put up, they go into the plant and make the plant toxic to insects that suck on the juices of the plant. They're particularly used for aphids, but other things that are related to aphids as well. And the uh, imidacloprid is in a number of products by Bonide, Monterey, other companies. In Davis and other areas where Chinese hackberry has been widely planted, was widely planted in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s as a shade tree to replace the elms that we were all taking out back then. Um, Chinese hackberry turned out 15 years ago to get a particular aphid, the Asian woolly hackberry aphid that comes in. It doesn't really hurt the tree, but it makes it a big sticky mess. And we're talking about a tree with a 30, 40 foot span over your whole backyard, over your patio, your furniture, everything dripping the equivalent of very light film of maple syrup over everything every single day. Mm -hmm. Some who don't wish to use insecticides will tell you, oh, you can rinse that off. I will say bunk. That's just complete nonsense. No, you can't rinse it off. There's no way. You can't, you'd have to be out there with a pressure washer every single day, washing off every single surface and washing the tree while you're at it. And the next day you'd have to do it again. So it is not a practical, it is not practical to tell people to just rinse off everything when they've got a big tree dripping sticky goop. And when this problem hit, a lot of people were ready to take out their, their Chinese hackberries. Interestingly, <laughs> If you happen to have a European hackberry or a common hackberry, not Celtis sinensis, but Celtis australis or Celtis occidentalis, um, I think I got those right, you won't have the problem because this is a very host-specific insect. It is the Asian woolly hackberry if it only attacks the Chinese hackberry. So that's good news if you happen to get a European hackberry. Unfortunately, the Chinese hackberry was way more popular because it had a denser growth habit and gave you shade more quickly. So people were ready to start cutting down those trees. And immediately, imidacloprid was found to be a very effective way to manage that problem. And you only had to pour, this is the reason I'm 
not reluctant to sell it to people if we have a conversation. You pour it on the ground right around the trunk. I mean, just a few feet out maximum from the trunk. And you water that in with another bucket full of water and it goes up into the tree and it kills the aphids for a full season on that tree. And we know that imidacloprid does some harm to soil organisms. We know it is definitely not good for earthworms, for example, but you're confining the application zone to a limited area. All right, and that's the concentrated label recommendation, pouring it on the ground at a rate that will go up into the tree and kill the aphids. What happens when the leaves fall? Those leaves do have imidacloprid in them. Imidacloprid breaks down in the tree over the period of about a year. Hence the popular brand, uh, Bonide, I think is the one that has the name, once a year aphid control. You apply it once a year, it controls aphids for that whole growing season. When those leaves fall, they do contain, obviously, some imidacloprid. The question then is, is it a risk to you? Is it a harm to the environment? And the risk to you, and also there's a philosophical question here. If you're an organic gardener, using leaves that contain imidacloprid, that's not organic. There is some imidacloprid in them, and uh, it could get into the soil. It could be taken up by the vegetable plants you, you're, you're eating. The risk to you is very, very low. The level of imidacloprid in your food products, food crops from leaves put on the ground around them from a tree that dropped its leaves would be very low to the point that the risk would be what they call vanishingly small. But it's still not something that an organic gardener is going to want to do. There's a breakdown process within the tree. There is imidacloprid. Some of its breakdown byproducts are in the leaves that fall. That is taken up by the roots of plants where the leaves are decomposing in very, very small amounts. That seems clear from research studies. There's also imidacloprid residue, just for the record, in much of the produce you buy at the grocery store unless you very carefully always buy organic. Imidacloprid has become the most widely used insecticide, and it's labeled for almost everything you eat. So there's a very high likelihood that there's some already in conventional produce. If you want to avoid it, you definitely need to buy organic produce. Um, it's very low toxicity to mammals. So that's the good news. The risk to you is very, very low. But there is evidence that the imidacloprid in those leaves could affect what we like to call in the business non-target organisms. In other words, it's hurting something that you weren't applying it for. And those are include things that decompose organic material. It is known to be harmful to earthworms. So probably better if those leaves then go out, rather than taking your neighbor's leaves and spreading them out on your vegetable garden, probably better if they go into the city composting process to further reduce the environmental risks, partly simply by the, the composting process itself and partly by the fact of the massive dilution. In other words, one of the solutions to pollution is dilution. You learn that if you're, <laughs> if you're ever a licensed pest control applicator, that's one of the things they're going to say at the very first meeting. The solution to pollution is dilution. Those leaves in the vast amount going into the city composting system, going through their composting process, would get down to the point where I would be surprised if you could get measurable levels or measurable, measurable levels that matter. Let's put it that way. So that was the first question. No, if I were raking up leaves from a tree that had been treated, the place I would put those leaves is right back on the ground, right underneath the tree that was treated. Mm -hmm. Seems like the best place for them. Probably well, not. it's already got imidacloprid in yeah. it, and yeah. so I mean, it's like you're not adding something to that. You're just yeah. returning a little bit to it. A little bit, and we do know that you know it has a half life. So then there was a follow up question, which I think you have. Uh, do you have the, the follow up question? Or do I, I do not to? want to ingest bad stuff. No, I read the whole question. Okay, I have a follow up question. All right, well, I'm at it. Scott replied, "I would like to ask one more related question. This last year, Yolo County." started producing compost. Are you aware of this? Yes. For a while it was free, now they're charging a minimal price. I went and got some just to check it out, but my thinking on that compost 
is to definitely not use it in the garden where I'm growing food for consumption. I suppose it's okay for other purposes in one's yard, but I thought I would ask you your thoughts. I would think there might be risk once again for non-target organisms. It seems to me there is no control on what might be in that material. And yeah, that is absolutely true. They don't have any control of what goes into the compost. Um, it's picked up all over town, the leaves and the clippings and the prunings that can include uh, lawn clippings of lawns that have been treated with herbicides. It can include lawn clippings of lawns that have been treated with insecticides. More common, by the way, back east than here, but it can be an issue. Uh, people here aren't in the habit of treating their whole lawn typically for grubs because we don't have the kind of grubs you all have in different different parts of the country. But it was very standard for many, many years. You get some grubs, you go into a garden center, they'd sell you a product frequently combined with fertilizer, for God's sake, there would be an insecticide. So you'd be treating your 5,000 square foot lawn because you had some grubs over there. I don't like that way of thinking, but it is a common thing. Those combination products can be a big issue with respect to lawn clippings. And of course, leaves from trees that have been treated, prunings from roses. Roses are heavily treated with imidacloprid by a lot of avid gardeners. So they do not have control over that. So to answer that question, compost does, of course, break things down over time more quickly than the soil does because of the higher temperatures, greater bacterial activity. So the question is how long it takes to reduce the risk of that compost to beneficials. Well, you can imagine just trying to devise the research project to ask answer that question. How long is the list of products you're going to be you're going to test for going to be? What are you exactly mm -hmm. testing for? The breakdowns of decomposition and so forth. So horticultural research is fairly random, as far as I can tell. So I can find, for example, that the half life of imidacloprid in an actual compost pile being turned, maintained to create internal temperatures at 140 degrees, adequate moisture. In other words, being run like a proper compost pile, is about 28 to 30 days. Well, let's just say 30 days. So it's about a month half-life. So you can do the math, you get out four to six months out, it's significantly reduced. It's half-life, 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 half-life. You're down to a very, what I would call relatively trivial amount. A very high percentage of the active ingredient has been broken down during a composting process and certainly is considered safe for human consumption. It's not organic because it's still in there, but it's considered safe. There is no control over what goes into the compost. Imidacloprid is labeled for such a wide range of landscape plants. It could end up in all those things I mentioned, lawn clippings, hedge trimmings, rose prunings. Risk to us is very low. Risk to non-target organisms, the beneficial things that live in the soil, from neonicotinoids after several months of composting, undetermined, probably very low. That's a big probably. We know the product used as directed is very harmful to earthworms. That wears off after about a year. So someone's applying them to cloprid year after year, population of earthworms in the application zone will be very low. We don't have an answer to what tiny amounts of imidacloprid in municipal compost are doing to earthworms. We don't have long-term feeding studies like that. But we do know that um, these things are probably present in very small amounts. And if that concerns you, your very best use for city compost will be just like those leaves from the hackberry tree around ornamental shrubs and trees predominantly, where they'll continue to break down in not only the compost itself as you use it as a mulch, but in the soil as it's incorporated into the soil. Okay. So James writes to us, thanks for a wonderful show. I have a question about my poor, sad pomegranate tree, picture <laughs> included. 
I think I purchased one that was a bit too tall and lanky, as it has never been able to support itself in several intervening years. Though it's also true that the location is not as sunny as one might wish. For a while, I attached it loosely to a stake, but have more recently let it flop. Vigorous vertical new shoots are coming up from the base. Does it make sense to let the shoots grow and gradually remove the original trunk? Or is this tree beyond saving? It usually aborts its fruit. Though once we did get tiny pomegranates, any advice would be appreciated. Curious why it's dropping its fruit. That's very interesting. Pomegranates are generally very easy to grow, but they are never naturally a tree. This is not a plant that ever has a single trunk by nature. So if you've bought one that way, the grower made a big effort to get it that way for you. And it's going to continue to sucker from the base. Here's the good news. Most fruit trees, if they sucker from the base, that's a different plant. It's a rootstock. In the case of pomegranates, it isn't. They're grown from cuttings. They're on their own roots. So you ah. can, yeah, you can let those shoots come up and you can have a big old pomegranate bush, which is the way nature intended it and not worry about the poor thing trying to flop over. I'm actually more concerned about why it's dropping its fruit and not developing them properly. Um, if you just let those shoots come up, you can at some point a year or so down the road, you can cut out the main center part. You still have the pomegranate variety that you planted. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you did that with, let's say a Meyer lemon or a peach now, or, or a, an orange or a peach, you now have a rootstock. So you can do it with a pomegranate. It's the way it naturally grows. They're just a big old shrub, 10 to 12 foot with equal spread. That's what I would do. I would stop trying to let that, that poor little single trunk thing function as a single trunk tree. My neighbor had one for years and she would go out every year and have to cut off all the suckers to keep it looking like a tree. I admit, I acknowledge that it looked beautiful when she got done, especially in bloom with all the flowers on it, all the fruit hanging on it, but it always was suckering like crepe myrtles and other plants that were trying to you know, turn into a, a tree that really aren't naturally trees. So my suggestion, strong suggestion would be let those suckers grow in this case. After a couple of years when they've overtaken that top, uh, maybe just prune that part out. The question I have is why you're not getting fruit, because pomegranate should be really easy to grow. Deep water it, not shallow watering, deep watering. Prune away nearby plants so there's more sunlight. It might be that it's in too much shade. If you can possibly get more sunlight on it, you may not be having enough bee activity for one reason or another. But uh, my guess is that if you just let it grow more vigorously and water more deeply, that's pretty much all you should need to do to get good fruit production on it. I think I'm going to keep that quote of yours, Don. Let those suckers grow. <laughs> and you only can do that on certain things. You can only do that on pomegranates and figs uh, because those are all rooted cuttings, not grafted. I'm trying to think off the top of my head of others. I'm sure I will. Uh, in the world of citrus. Pussy I, willows. Yeah, well, there's lots of ornamentals, of course, and there's and there's ornamentals that are grafted. So it's real important to know if the plant you're getting is grafted. If I've, Too often I see pictures or talk to people where they inadvertently let a rootstock grow and now it's the dominating the tree. And at that point, particularly with citrus, you know, you, you've, you've got three quarters of your tree is rootstock and the little tiny branch down here is the mandarin or whatever you planted. Pruning off the rootstock is going to take away, you know, you're pretty much starting over and you almost might as well start over at that point. But figs and pomegranates are on their own roots. In the world of citrus, Meyer lemons usually are, but not always. So it's important to know when you buy it, if it's on its own roots or on a rootstock. Uh, bear slime, the Persian lime and the Mexican lime are often rooted cuttings, but sometimes grafted. So it's important to know. You can tell by looking at the plant to some degree, uh, hopefully the garden center will know as well, but it's important to know if the fruit tree or ornamental tree that you're buying is on a root stock. I have a beautiful, looking out the window, beautiful maple tree. It's an October glory. 
Well, I should correct that. One branch is October Glory. The rest of it was rootstock that came up when I wasn't paying attention 20 years ago. <laughs> and the rootstock grew up. And so this tree is 90% just some kind of maple. And one branch, October Glory, which my son thinks is hilarious. So it has fall color. One branch is bright red. The rest was just kind of yellow. And he goes, yeah, that's dad's maple tree. <laughs> I was talking about taking it out. He goes, no, we should leave this as an example. That's a great. You need okay. pictures of that. Post pictures of that. Post yeah. Don, post pictures yes. of that. Yeah. <laughs> so we're at the end of December. I mean, you know, we got 10 more days. Mm -hmm. It's going to be difficult to buy anything and grow anything right now because it's kind of cold and wet and rainy. Mm -hmm. But Don, when are the seed catalogs coming? Oh, I've got four of them on my desk already and a couple more here at home. They're already arriving and we are going through them, picking out. First thing I do is I go to the back to see which weird flowers they have this year. Then I go to the front to see which tomato varieties they think is the best thing that's ever happened. I'll probably grow both of those things, but I always like to find out what are the new things they brought in. Seed catalogs are arriving. We've already ordered way too much seed. Uh, <laughs> certain varieties I was concerned about having seed, early girl, Juliet. So we got them. We got our seed for that. And uh, this is a good time to start exploring those. We have been experimenting with cut flowers and old-fashioned garden flowers in the last couple of years. We'll talk more about this in a sort of a special segment dedicated to it. But this year, 2022, for example, we decided to grow several varieties of Nicotiana, ornamental tobacco. That Those are still blooming. I'm looking out the window at plants that have gone through 27 degrees and they're still in flower. They bloomed all summer. They've reseeded very happily, which I guess might be a bit of a nuisance with that plant. There's a bunch of different varieties and they all did well. So I actually think we'll, we'll do a segment probably in a couple of weeks since this would be good seed starting weather for a lot of you to think about things you could plant out in the spring for bloom next summer. Some of the things that uh, we've been experimenting with, these older fashioned garden flowers that have fallen out of favor for one reason or another another might not have anything to do with how they'll do in your garden. It's more how they do in containers for nurseries. The bedding plant industry drives what's available to you. So I'm trying to find the other things that you might want to grow from seed or perhaps, you know, buy at my nursery if we happen to get them going and sell them that way. Nicotiana, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a foreshadow. Nicotiana, cornflower, and those snapdragons I mentioned at the start of the show were really the big hits from the things we started this year to test as, as garden plants and see how they did. So we'll talk more about that. Good time to look through seed catalogs. Good time to think about fruit trees because the bare root season, deciduous fruit trees, is right around the corner. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California. KDRT-FM is a community radio station broadcasting from Davis, California in the Sacramento Valley of Northern California. Community radio relies entirely on donations from listeners like you to fund our ongoing operational costs. Your support keeps us on the air. If you appreciate local community radio, the unique voices and programming that KDRT provides, please consider contributing at whatever level you can. It's easy. Just visit KDRT.org, that's K-D-R-T dot O-R-G, and click the support button live streaming all around the world on catert.org. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Catert.